Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're pitched into this world of fear. Going into a doctor's appointment with with a sense of humor as opposed to a sense of dread helped. You're making a lot of decisions in that period, but you're really in a primal place. Our show is about fixes. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, this is a special show to me. My mom died years ago of breast cancer, and my friend Debbie Gallant, who's with us, is living with it. You know, I think so many people have very intimate experience with this. My mother's a longtime breast cancer survivor. So we're going to look at Debbie's struggle and the lessons that she's learned over the past few months. Treatment and diagnosis are a lot better, but we still have a long way to go. About 40,000 American women will die from breast cancer this year. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Debbie Gallant is joining us in the studio. Debbie is the Associate Director of New Media Initiatives at Montclair State University, and she runs the New Jersey News Commons, an effort to support and unite news organizations in the state. And perhaps even more important, she's the host of a great new podcast, Chemophiles. Uh, it's one of our favorites, and, and here's an excerpt. Oh, it's like the middle of the night again. Welcome to the Chemo Files. I'm Debbie Gallant. And here's what 3 a.m. sounds like in my house these days. It's like the middle of the night again. That's right. It is like the middle of the night, so. Right now, this whole sleep thing is pretty weird. If you go to sleep at 8 o'clock in the evening, it shouldn't surprise anybody that you might be wide awake around 3. I'm smack in the middle of my five months of chemotherapy. I was told from the beginning that, like a law of physics, the side effects of chemo would be cumulative, especially when it came to fatigue. It would add up. Debbie Glenn, joining us in the studio. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And Debbie's son, Noah, is also in the studio with us. Noah's, by the way, the co-producer of The Chemo Files. Which uh, we're particular fans of. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Debbie, you learned last summer that you had breast cancer. What happened? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who gets that call is terrified. And you're pitched into this world of fear, basically this incredible world of fear. And what it reminded me of was um, in the days following 9-11, where you'd wake up in the morning and you'd have this gut 
feeling of, oh, no. Um, and that feeling does go away. You think you're going to live with it all, all that time. But it's hard. You're making a lot of decisions in that period, but you're really in a primal place. Yeah, I think everybody can relate to this, not maybe in a first-person way, but I think all of us have had some experience with our family. I'm actually, uh, Richard, unlike you, my mother's a longtime breast cancer survivor. So I remember that time almost 40 years ago now when I got that call, flew out to California to be with my mother. She went through that initial period of all the doctor's visits, and things have come a long way since then. When you went through this, what was your first treatment? I had gone to a particular breast doctor in my town who doesn't take insurance, and I had been to her before. And um, during that first experience, they're saying, well, you're going to get an MRI, and you're going to do this, and even if it's negative, I think we're going to do a surgery. And I felt at that moment that they were churning, and that everything was going to be out of pocket. They were churning why? Because for profit. I mean, I felt like it was all out of, it was all out of network. And I just felt suspicious. And I, I had and have all along a friend who's a doctor and does holistic medicine, is an internist and acupuncturist. So I would talk to him about things. I ultimately went to the doctor in network who gave very similar advice. So it turned out that the first doctor really wasn't churning, but I felt much better that it was all going to be paid for. With churning, so you had the suspicion that a lot of tests were going to be ordered up for you that might not be necessary. And that I was going to have to pay out of pocket for them, yeah. 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 That so, was... so your first lesson and, and your first solution, get a second opinion. Right, right. And the, what made me feel comfortable was that the second doctor was saying almost the same things as the first. So as you see consensus, you feel safer. You think, oh, there must be a standard message here, and I am getting the standard conventional wisdom, and everybody agrees. And what sort of treatment did you get? What was your diagnosis? Um, invasive ductal carcinoma with a special kind that's called triple negative, which is more aggressive. Um, you basically have two choices. You can do surgery first and then chemo, or you can do chemo first and then surgery. But you go to a surgeon first. So it seems pretty typical that you get the surgery first. And then there was a decision, lumpectomy versus mastectomy. Now, when you start getting faced with these decisions, at the early stage, maybe people are agreeing, but then you, you hit points where not everyone does agree, and you need to start making some of your own decisions or, or bringing in more people into your team. Do you have a, a group of people that you consult with before a major decision? Right. There is a nurse navigator, and that is something that I think is relatively new in the cancer world. Yeah. Tell us about what that is. What is a nurse navigator? Yeah. So like the day after I saw my surgeon, I get this call from this woman, and she goes, I'm your nurse navigator, and I'm here to answer any questions you have about cancer or your treatment. And and she was really very nice. And unlike you know most doctors, I could actually reach her by regular regular email. I didn't have to go through a yeah, one of those, physician those portals. Yeah. And so she, she really did help clarify things. And I remember right around the time that I was doing this, ProPublica, the investigative network, had just come out with a rating of like every surgeon in the nation. And I looked at my surgeon. I wasn't able to... I didn't see any problems with him on the thing, but didn't get any deep dive on it either. And they had a thing on what kind of questions to ask. And I saw that he had originally been identified as a general surgeon. So I asked the nurse navigator, it, it still says on his bio that he's a general surgeon. Is he really a breast surgeon? Um, I, I, has he done dozens of these? Has he done hundreds of these? Has he done thousands of these? You know, mastectomy or lumpectomy, she said thousands. Um, that was a relief to be able to ask. What sort of difference does a nurse navigator make to a patient? 
Um, this particular one was great. Um, and she also did help me on the decision between lumpectomy and mastectomy. Nobody twisted my arm. And um, the surgeon basically gave me a choice. The oncologist who I had seen right before the surgery um, was a little bit mysterious. And, you know, after Noah... Noah Levinson, your son, who's with us. Who's with us. And so starting about a month or so into treatment, he started coming with me to my doctor's appointments. And and, um, we we were able to, to decode my oncologist and figure out how to how to talk to him but it was kind of like a tough source who would just sort of nod at things and so so that very first meeting of him he, he seemed to be telling me that I should go for a mastectomy instead of a lumpectomy but he did it in ways that were not verbal and so afterwards I was like wait what did he what 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 did he say you know I wasn't sure and then when we we talked to him the next time Noah listened back to the tape over and over again, and he found that this guy goes to being a low talker when he says something important. And and it kind of, you know, so now I just get very in his face and say, okay, is this your advice that we do this? Right, Noah? Right, yeah. We had to make him explicit about it. Right, right. But when I went back to the nurse navigator, I said to her, what's the deal? Why do some people get mistaken? Because my surgeon had left it basically up to me. He had said if I was BRCA positive, that's a genetic test, we would definitely go for the mastectomy. I wasn't BRCA positive. But she said, look, here's what will happen. If you do a lumpectomy, you'll have mammograms. You'll you'll have lots of tests all your life. And you will have scares and you will have false positives. And if you have a mastectomy, you're not going to have that. And I just went, okay, (laughs) sign me up for the mastectomy. No, I want to ask you, a, was the podcast your idea? Yeah, the podcast is my idea. When I found out that the chemo was on a certain schedule every two weeks, I thought, well, we could do a production schedule like that. <laughs> and uh, what's the experience been like of working with your mother? It's been great. Uh, I mean, you know, we sort of all wish it was somebody else's story a little bit. But, I mean, it was really clear in that appointment with the oncologist uh, where we heard these three recommendations uh, for chemotherapy. Uh, We listened back to the tape with this idea that we were editing an episode. Um, It really, that was, that was sort of the ethic with which we went into it. And then the conversation morphed into, well, hang on, which chemo are we actually going to get? Uh, And it became this tool with which we looked at every aspect of the cancer journey and how, to deal with our own confusion and our own feelings about it um, was to articulate them. If you have to make a story for somebody else, it's probably going to become clearer to you what's really going on. You know, it's so interesting what you say about the oncologist. I've heard this from so many people that, A, I think maybe some people go into that field who are really intrigued by the scientists, and they may be great doctors, but they're maybe not... Good communicators, communicators yeah. first, huh. but B, I have this feeling that the medical field is people are often averse to be perceived as bossing their patients around. They they, they don't want to tell you exactly what to do, and I kind of felt like if I was in that position, to be like, tell me what to do, <laughs> or at least if I was your son or your brother, what would your recommendation be? Um, you know, and, and, and that, don't give me too exactly many choices. We, that's exactly what we asked the doctor. There are a number of different chemotherapies that you can do uh, and some of them 
make you lose your hair and some of them actually don't uh, and some of them are tougher to take uh, and longer he presented these three options and said well these are all uh, medically reasonable options but he recommended the third one that he mentioned but which he, was the the harshest treatment right and he, but he kind of recommended it softly and in that episode here's where this we is the episode it, of chemo files <laughs> right the episode of my life and of chemo files noah says listen very carefully because this is where i ask him what would you do if it was somebody in your family and he says act and noah says you hear he's saying act which is a regimen but he's saying it very softly um you know, one of the reasons that particular one was scary, too, was that, that there was a possibility of heart uh, failure. <laughs> we, 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 were, we were ready for hair loss and stuff like that, but we did, heart wow. failure was it. So two things you've said. One is there's just a huge amount of information that you have to consider once you've been diagnosed, right? Right. At the beginning, when I was really ruled by fear, I was terrified of going on the Internet. And... I have gained courage as time has gone on, and I found out more. And it's like, if you want to find out more, like basically one of the people I know who has this triple negative is in her third clinical trial. And that was like a light bulb went off. Oh, clinical trials. Oh, how do you find out about that? In, in my case, nobody's offered them to me. So it's been suddenly researching and squirreling around the web. And then once I started doing that, then I'd stop in on these boards. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Didn't get more information. Then the other thing that you've said, you haven't actually said it, but it's clear, is the importance of family. And your son, Noah, has been through this with you. You've had a chance to discuss this stuff with with other people, that must be really important. Yeah, that that, that definitely is. Um, we go into every appointment talking about what we're going to talk about because we only get about 10 or 15 minutes at the most. And then we come out of it talking about what we did talk about, what we learned. Um, and, and, and that must be so much more helpful to you than if you had to go through this on your own. Yeah. And then also the other thing is that I guess the first time in... She said yes, Noah. Yes. 
Yes, yes, you've been very helpful. <laughs> the first time Noah came with me, he was he had the mic going in the waiting room, and we were really punchy. And he kept turning on record for every funny little thing that we said. And I was like, okay, enough. No, we're going to get kicked out. But I found <laughs> that that punchiness leveled the playing field. Going into um, a doctor's appointment with with a sense of humor as opposed to a sense of dread really, you know, helped. Yeah, because a lot of people don't have microphones and they're not going to do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, right. actually, this raises a really interesting question. I find even as a healthy patient, I go in and talk to the doctor and I come out and my mind's a blank what they right. said. Right. So I usually bring a, I'm a reporter, I, you know, I'm used to bringing notebooks. It's probably a good idea for everybody, but maybe for a lot of people using your phone and recording what the doctor says, I, you get so little time. I've heard people doing that who were not podcasters actually recording and asking permission to record their doctors. None of my doctors were uncomfortable with me recording them. Um, the PR person for St. Barbara's <laughs> Hospital was uncomfortable with me recording, but um, the doctors weren't. It's not a bad idea. So you're going through this great trial. Uh, mm. How do you look at the world differently? How do you look at life differently? Right away, a friend gave me this book, Cancer is a Turning Point. And um, so you start to think this game that we play where we think that life is going to go on and on and on forever. And you're kind of pulled out of that. Even if you had the best prognosis, you know, at 95 percent, you'd still be worried. Is that all bad? Because no. my, my brother died Ooh. of cancer 10 years ago, an unmitigated tragedy in our family's life. And my response was to buy a second home. To, to mm. have a little bit more fun in my life than perhaps I would have done, to be a little bit more irresponsible. Ah, uh, yeah, no, and I, I think for me, it's that time is more valuable than money or things. A lot of the recovery was on the porch from the surgery and just savoring that porch time. And because I'm a writer, I did have this sort of epiphany that while I'm sitting there and trying to play the odds on how much time I have left, it made me start thinking about all the experiences I've had. I'm 60. And, and I, it's all material, and I want to mine it. I feel like I have a treasure chest to play with as a writer. And, I, and, and, and that was just a really interesting way of turning it around. So you haven't bought the Ferrari yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no Ferrari. <laughs> Talk about the importance of humor. Yeah. Um, well, it certainly disarms people. I mean, I wrote an essay about the first 48 hours of having cancer. And I said to my husband, should I, should I push the button? Should I publish it? He said, well, you know, you'll get those puppy dog looks. But I did talk to my friend Jeff Jarvis, who is a very public guy, and he said one of the things it will tell people is that you are still Debbie if you've got your voice there. And because you don't, I didn't want people walking on eggshells around me. I, you know, didn't want to be this pity case where people were treating me like I was on my deathbed. I'm not there yet. I hopefully won't be there for a long time. But, you know, I'm still... You know, functioning and laughing and, and, you know. This is not an eggshell question. Talk about your fear of dying. Yeah, I mean, here's this game that I play on the Internet. I, I play it almost every night. I go on there and I say, what's the survival rate of a stage 1A triple negative breast cancer? And I can't find it. But <laughs> I cannot find a true answer to this. But it is the scariest question that I can ask. And... um I think that I, the way I think of it now is that I'm able to process the idea that my life may be shorter than I expected, but I'm not really able to envision the deathbed. There could be a recurrence. There could be a metastasis. I've been on boards online where people have it, and they talk about it very matter-of-factly the way I talk about cancer. So I think that that comes first. Like, I don't think I have to you know, worry about... Well, we do have an old, a very old will. I haven't updated it. So 
be, having cancer plunges you into a relationship with the healthcare industry that most people don't have. What have you learned? What what are what's our medical system doing well? What's not so good? Well, another thing I learned, and this goes back to the internet, is that my doctor, particularly an oncologist, he he treats all kinds of cancer. So he's not on the lookout for every triple negative breast cancer research or breakthrough that there is. So if I want that, I have to go seek it out. Um, But on the other hand, I'm heartened by the fact there's a lot of research going on. And if you do have a diagnosis that's uh, a little bit worse, that's where the research is focused. How we screen for breast cancer is is highly controversial, and one of your podcasts really dealt with this. And A national task force, for instance, has called for women to wait until the age of 50 to begin screening for breast cancer. What's your take on the debate? Well, Noah and I have different takes on this. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) Um, So from the individual's point of view, I know that if I had waited the two years, which is what they were recommending after 55 they would have found my fast-growing cancer a year later. And that would have been bad for me. But Noah, Noah you yeah, can talk yeah, about Noah, what's your take? Well, she's right. Uh, in, in her individual case, uh, this mammogram may well have saved her life, uh, which makes it... It's really hard to think in these massive numbers because for uh, our episode where we dealt with this mammogram debate just weeks after the American Cancer Society had come out scaling back its own uh, recommendations for mammograms. We talked to people who really were invested in the pure science. A lot of people think that everyone on the side of less screening, that it's always um, budget hawks. Um, But the person we talked to, Dr. Michael Baum, he implemented Uh, screening hubs in the UK back in the 80s. He sat on the National Screening Committee and his research in the last 20 years has led him to this conclusion that the amount of overdiagnosis and false diagnosis of precancers, things that could become cancer, that are getting treated before that happens, exposes massive numbers of women to a risk that he doesn't think is justified. And that risk is usually radiation. And that's been a big issue for men in terms of prostate cancer. They can find it very early, but if it's slow-growing cancer, maybe you're better off not knowing it's there. Right. I have to say, personally, I think I'd rather know. And I agree with you. I would rather know, too. But um, that once people have cancer, they want to do everything. Mm-hmm. So they don't act rationally. They they act out of fear. There's a lot going on out of fear. So let's talk about solutions. And there was a wonderful episode of your chemo files about the sisterhood. Yeah. Tell us about the sisterhood. The cancer sisterhood is amazing, you know, and I, I discovered it very early when, um, well, because I was so public. And if you're not public, you're, you're not going to necessarily benefit from it as much because it was the fact that I did a blog post and people from all parts of the Facebook and the internet came to me who had had cancer. So I put it out there and from that came people who I barely knew, who I didn't know, who'd had breast cancer and who said, I'm here to help you. There was a woman named Bunny who came to me because the original doctor had asked her to call me. She called me at work and she was a complete stranger and she totally calmed me down. And then I've had that opportunity to do that with other people as well. And sometimes it's really kind of trivial stuff and sometimes it's existential emotional stuff and the hand holding. And sometimes it's really critical medical information. A little closer to home, any advice for how to involve your family, how to lean on people that are closest to you? 
Oh, boy. Um, you need a lot of luck to have a good family that, that is able to listen. I was very happy that Noah decided to come home. Um, and I think that's actually fairly common. Uh, I mean, not... Yeah, I, I came home when yeah. my mother had cancer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I felt a little bit guilty, but it was like a bonus prize to be able to get all this time with him. Give your best argument for being a self-advocate. Um, who else is going to advocate for you? <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, you know, but you have to come from a place of of knowledge and self knowledge about your body too. Yeah, yeah, and you don't necessarily have to be a journalist or or a professional to have that. I mean, it's it's about the, the ability to question the people but in white does, coats. It does take confidence. Or maybe even have a family member there at doctor's appointments being an advocate for you. Absolutely. So, Noah, what have you learned about your mother through this process? Uh, well, she's a very good journalist. And uh, I'm trying to break into journalism and, and radio. So we write a script for each episode. And the first time we sat down together and said, okay, well, we pretty much understand the story. Let's write out the words. It probably took us... 15 hours or some some ridiculous amount of of hand-wringing over phrasing and over which quote was important and what was taking up too much time and we have uh over over these last um you know five or six episodes uh have really become much better collaborators uh and um i've, I've learned so much debbie gallant and your son noah levinson 22 right 23 23. Okay, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So, Richard, both of us come to the show with a lot of personal baggage and experience. In my case, much happier than yours, but yeah. it's I found it just really moving to sit here with, with Debbie and Noah and and here are their experiences as they're still in the thick of it. Yeah, and I think that what it underlines for me is the importance of work, family, and humor, uh, especially her humor. So often with cancer and with other tragedies, it's hard to talk to people because you feel you can't make a joke. And I think that just listening to Debbie talk about it with so much humor is hopefully helpful. Yeah, a couple things that really jumped out at me. One is she's very public about it, and and I think she wouldn't say that's for everybody, No, but I think it's something that really works for her, and I've seen this in a number of people in my circle who've been through this, that uh, being public helps rally the, the support, and I think maybe it's um, somewhat liberating for the patient. Yeah, one of the things we're going to do with Debbie between now, the recording, and when we release this show is to put on our website some advocacy and help organizations. Um, if you've been listening to this and you, you want to know more, uh, that'll be on our website, uh, which is howdowefixit.me. The other big thing, of course, is to be your own advocate, to do the research, and I was intrigued by this idea of recording the interviews with the doctors. I've heard so many people saying that their oncologist wasn't the greatest communicator or wasn't as clear as they wanted. 
making sure that you have that record of exactly what he or she is saying, I think is really valuable for people with all kinds of medical conditions. Yeah, and most people have smartphones and they're very easy to find the recording devices on those. They're, they're, that's not a difficult thing to do. And the final thing for me is I was just very touched um, by the relationship between Debbie and Noah and the idea of him coming home and creating this wonderful podcast out of this shared experience. And then also the sisterhood. I think a lot of women, and I won't make vast generalizations, but a lot of women I think have deeper, richer friendships than men do, especially when they're talking about their bodies and their emotions. I think that's probably true. It'd be interesting to get, say, a prostate cancer survivor in to see what what that experience is like. Yeah, maybe we'll do that in a future show. (laughs) Something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. You're listening to it right now. How Do We Fix It is recorded at Mono Lisa Studios in beautiful uptown Manhattan. Our audio engineer is Denise Barbarita. And the show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Thanks for joining us. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.